Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. A tip of the hat and a welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 275. Guys, this is a snazzy episode. It's uh, the Wachowskis and Tom Tickver uh, in a massive directing collective. Well, massive. Okay, there's three. there's three people. But when you look at their work, uh, Tom did Run, Lola, Run, and Perfume, and, and the Wachowskis, of course, did uh, Bound and Oh, The Matrix, uh, among other things. And they all directed together Cloud Atlas, which I cannot recommend to you enough. That movie is fucking dazzling. I, I, it's the kind of movie that you can see that I... I want to see it three or four times because there's there's so much there's so much density with stuff that's going on in the movie that uh, that you could watch it a few times and and see a different movie each time. So I don't want to give too much away about it. I will say there are some mild spoilers in this podcast, not nothing earth shattering. But if you wanted to go into Cloud Atlas with a with a blank slate, then maybe put this off until until after you see the movie. But uh, not to sound pretentious, but I really this was a lovely philosophical discussion about art and filmmaking and expressing ideas and figuring out who you are and you know what I learned from talking to the three of them is that they would sacrifice everything to just be able to make the kinds of things that they want to make and tell the stories that they want to tell and uh, it was there's no other word for it. It was kind of beautiful. It was kind of beautiful. I, I really enjoyed talking to, to, to all of them. Uh, Tom and Annie and Lana, who was... Lana's so warm and articulate and uh, and has just a lot of really terrific ideas. And, you know, it's, I know that they all don't do a lot of interviews uh, normally, and it's too bad because I feel like they have a lot of great stuff to say. So I really... I hope you enjoy this episode of The Nerds Podcast, number 275, uh, with Tom Tickver and the Wachowskis. Now entering Nerdist.com. What are you, which, which, which leading intellectual literary the publication? Globe. The Boston Globe. Very smart. I hear we're dumping all of our tea in the harbor there. Is that? <laughs> I haven't read it in a long time, so I may not be current. Uh, I don't know. Um, Actually, no. Tom Tickver, uh, you are here. And then I, I would like to start referring to you as, uh, is Wachowski Starship, <clears throat> is, that, is that the correct... <laughs> Is that the correct? I, that, uh, it's, <laughs> was that a joke that people yeah, took seriously? It's, it's unbelievable what pe- reporters or people will just pick up on. Not only is it is it reported on that we're Wachowski Starship, and the message boards are saying how pretentious we are for calling ourselves. <laughs> but now, now we're actually calling ourselves the W Hotel. We've made a deal with the W Hotel, and uh, that's now our new name. I want so to explain this refer first. to us as the W Hotel. So you guys were first Wachowski Airplane. That's cor- that's correct. We were Wachowski dirigible, actually. Uh, I, by the way, I, I did see Cloud Atlas, and it's fucking awesome. I heard about the movie about a month ago when it's like with a couple of uh, like film festivals and these reports, and then and then we had Tom Hanks on the podcast, and and uh, and it was the movie is so fascinating to me because I don't. I mean, I guess the only way you pitch that movie is you just hand someone the Mitchell book and go, "It's here. It's this." Is that? <laughs> Mm. No, we actually 
you know, um, went away and wrote the script and then brought the script to people with pictures, pretty pictures to help them understand. And yeah, I think uh, we pitched it in all the ways humanly possible, including... Super reductionist pitches where you would walk in and they'd say, it's really complicated. <laughs> Can you help me? And I said, look, it's really simple. It's very simple. Tom Hanks had already been a attached at that point and we said Tom Hanks is a character he's a bad guy he meets Halle Berry he falls in love he becomes a good guy and he saves the human race <laughs> <laughs> what else do you need uh, yeah. sold so when you do you guys do all of you still have to pitch to studios at that point or do they just go yeah here do whatever you want or is it still a huge pain in the ass uh, no we took it to all the studios uh, uh, in town and they all passed uh, basically so we don't really first round was up. absolute uh, constant with no. the cast with the cast that we have all in the place cast. really entirely passed. attached all and then the... we finally got Warner Brothers to agree to uh, pick up the domestic so it's it's an independently financed movie it's an independent yeah. film because n nearly 90% of the budget we had to find elsewhere and it's not like the independent world is full of, like, you know, foresight-driven, art-seeking individuals either. We couldn't sell this movie in that market for a year. And it was even more profoundly disturbing is that we showed them the sort of script version with the cast, mm -hmm. and they all said no. And then even after we had the finished film, we showed it. And this included, like, to England. We could not find one distributor in England with a movie that had Hugh Grant, Jim Sturgis, Jim Broadbent. It was based on a book by a British author. And, and we still couldn't sell it. Well, not to bring it back to before, but it's because we dumped their tea in the harbor. They're <laughs> still really mad about that. And so it's hard to produce films as a result. That's their long-term revenge plan. <laughs> So I'm sorry that we ruined it for you. you. Could be right. You could but be seriously, right. death to King George! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to get political <laughs> on the podcast. Mm. I love the movie because it's it's. Uh, I I hadn't actually I hadn't read the book. Is you know when when you're when you're adapting a book to a to a, a, a screenplay, do you do you want your audience to come in having read the book, or do you like them coming in with a fresh perspective and then going, oh, now I think I'd like to read the book. I think it should be both ways possible. Uh, I mean, if, if you find a way to, to adapt a, a, a novel, and particularly, of course, we felt a strong urge to succeed on all levels here because we so much loved the book. We really, we totally fell in love with the novel first, which was actually the start of the whole thing. And, uh, and so what you actually have to try and achieve is to... Uh, you could say adaptation is an adequate word, but sometimes it sometimes even feels that interpretation is a more mm. uh, a nicer term mm. to find a way to say we're taking something uh, that we want to preserve in its essence, but we translate it into a completely different medium and um, obviously a different sort of narrative. Yeah, and basically it's uh, as David Mitchell later put it, the way he experienced the way we took it apart and put it together again. He said, like, okay, I had this huge pile of Lego pieces that I had built my super complex castle with. That was the novel. And then we took all those pieces apart again <laughs> completely and rebuilt it. Yeah. Uh, but with his pieces. I wonder if it's kind of fun. I mean, as... I guess that's cool. I'm I'm not a director, and nor do I ever want to be, because it just like the the prospect of what you have to shoulder through that process is does not sound fun to me. But um, <laughs> oh, but the is. but the idea of well, and that's why you should be a director. Um, <laughs> but the idea of uh, you know, the Lego idea of piecing stuff together, particularly with a movie like this, which seems on the surface seems non-linear, but when you watch the movie, you go, oh no, actually, there's a total linear story that's happening here. <clears throat> That you have to, you know, like you said, assemble almost more like a collage in, in a weird sort of way. Is that is that as a director, is, do you approach it from that point and go, oh, this actually is fun because of the way we have to tell the story? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it was it, it was like that when we uh, d dismantled the book and, you know, put all the scenes on index cards and, you know, you're finding the connections and you're f uh, making all these uh finding these reflective characters and these connective moments where one scene in one era will pay off another scene in another era. 
uh, but also in the editing room where you uh, where you notice uh, uh, you know see the editorially uh, it was much more fluid because uh, you, uh, there were so many connective elements uh, just by having the actors play different characters so you could uh, 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 suddenly uh, one scene you'd have uh, um, uh, Nurse Noakes played by Hugo Weaving. Uh, and you'd cut to another scene where uh, Hugo Weaving is uh, Bill Smoke, and or somewhere it's implied that Bill Smoke is around, and suddenly that scene uh, has a bit more danger to it. Or uh, Hugo Weaving as uh, Taddeus Kesselring, the the composer, it uh, instantly uh, uh, added this weight to the scene because you knew that Hugo was a killer in some of the other uh, in some of the other narratives. I think. I enjoyed watching mm. all of the noses. I know that sounds crazy, but I enjoyed like <laughs> Susan Sarandon the, the first. They're like, oh, I love that. It just just watching for an actor. I would be surprised if they didn't all immediately say yes when you told them what you wanted to do. That they get to play all these different characters. There were people who were afraid of it. There were a lot of people who who backed away or who wouldn't even meet to us. Fortunately, most of the people who are on the top of our list were super enthusiastic. And a lot of them, people like Hugo Weaving, have, a, have done this sort of thing before in their lives where they've done it, but they've, they're only allowed to do it in theater. It's like there's a rigidity to the conventional forms of storytelling in cinema. And a lot of those conventional forms are never even questioned, let alone uh, sort of does anyone ever try to really experiment with them. We're always drawn to... to trying to transcend those basic conventions. So in some, some people will look at it and say, you know, oh, I see that prosthetic nose. That's like totally fake. That's not <laughs> Susan Sarandon's nose. I don't believe it. And then, you know, but they won't, they won't ever question the other direction of the convention. They'll never say, you know, something like, you know, we all know, or I mean, how many people out there believe that Denzel Washington can fly a plane upside down? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just the conventional way that we've always done it. Here's the star. Of course, the star can suddenly be whoever the character that they're playing. But nobody says, well, this is just convention. This yeah. is just the way we've done it before. And so people think that they, that that convention somehow translates into believability right somehow more than a fake nose does but <laughs> <laughs> and for us we find the fake nose is a, a little more interesting and and it has a subtext to it it has a the idea of all of these there's an idea behind all of these people playing different parts yeah that to us is even more it's more attractive than just the conventional the star plays the the person who drives the plane upside down what we like is that there's a subtext about humanity and the, and the transcending of differentiation that we are attracted to it's the i mean i i believe there's a big joy element about the complicity you have with the audience you as an audience at least i do that when i watch a movie have with a film when you when you, of course, subconsciously or on a certain level, you realize, you know, the tricksy part of some situations. And as long as it doesn't pull you out, it's actually, for me, it's part of the, uh, of the beauty of experience, uh, uh, an aesthetic creation in general. You, you are drawn into the narrative. You're like, you know, you're com hopefully, of course, completely immersed in, in the story. And yet, of course, there's moments where, it's joyful to admire or to be involved in, you know, the actual creation of the illusion and right. knowing that it is, of course, made, but liking the way it's made. I mean, I mean, understanding choices and following the choices and giving those choices a meaning beyond only what's happening in the plot. I always think that the, I assume a director's hardest job is to have a consistent voice throughout a movie and to keep everything coherent. Obviously... You are used to working together as a team, but then you add, basically, there's a directorial threesome that's happening. And so how do you, you're not only assembling a story through different ages and times and realities, but you're also assembling several different points of view at the same time. So how do you stay consistent and keep the movie feeling like the uh, one movie all the way through when there's three of you? Well, 
we think it's interesting. I mean, especially someone who's been on the other side of the camera, an actor. There is a there is a mistaken construction about how we understand cinema as an art form, and that has to do with trying to project our traditional. Um, 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 the, the traditional way that we understand art being made by these singular individuals. So there's the the writer or the painter up on the mountaintop who's like working in isolation, creating this you know piece of truth or beauty. And in order to understand that, you relate it to this one person. So they we take that and we try to project it onto cinema, and we say, well. There has to be one person in order to have a voice or a singular um, sort of perspective. But cinema isn't the same. It's a different art form. It's a social art form, and it's created by a group of people. Its tradition is more related to theater, and it's it's like a, a branch of evolution. You have the Neanderthal over here, and you have the Homo sapien over here. It's like they're <laughs> totally different. And we like we like the social art form. We like collaboration. Andy and I, you know, if you had like a singular artist, might have a mono perspective. Well, we have we have a a, a more bifocal or a sort of like <laughs> we we're we're able to achieve three dimensionality. We have the two views, and then we get Tom, and then well, now we have a quantum view because it's like time and space. It just becomes more. Um, um, for us, more interesting because there's more perspectives on the vision. Yeah. And in, and it relates in the exact same way that it relates to working with an actor or a DP or a storyboard artist. It's, a, it's an interaction that creates the piece of art. It's not, a, it's not a, ever a monologue. It's always a dialogue. You know, even Francis Ford Coppola is making Apocalypse Now. He runs up against Marlon Brando's perspective at the end. And that dialogue between the two is what results in those scenes. It's not, it wouldn't be possible by, he couldn't make it by himself. Yeah. And that's why uh, cinema we think is so unique and special. And, and uh, every piece of art that's made as a result of this collective needs to be understood through the lens of that collective. Yeah, you know, obviously it is. Uh, it, it needs the the deep affection and that the love that we share with each other, the the way that we really feel like we're very connected, the three of us, in so many levels. I mean, in taste issues, you need to of course make sure that you feel like you're living on a similar aesthetic uh, or ideal planet. And when it comes to art, and also when it comes to social encounters, and that was one of the magical things when we met that it felt like it was really love at first sight we were completely taken by meeting each other and um, there was this thing that at the same time we were directors and we knew okay it's pretty hard i mean i'm a german director <laughs> and there's these guys from chicago how are we actually going to spend time with each other how are we <laughs> going to make friendship happen so they actually went to quite some lengths to try and make it work by they they basically brought two productions that the, that that they uh, worked on to to Berlin and part of it was actually that we planned on spending time together and uh, as it is with directors my plans were working in different directions and the moment they literally the moment the day they arrived in Berlin to start filming on Viva Vendetta my plane was taking off uh, to Spain for me to film Perfume and I was gone for a year. Oh, and, shit. <laughs> so we were like always calling each other saying, like, oh, that did not really work out. <laughs> so <laughs> what do we do next? And then they came back for Speed Racer and I took off to do the International. It really was, uh, it, it was a bit of a fate feeling about it. And we felt like, okay, the only way to get out of this problem is if we make a movie together. Yeah, well, and... The whole idea of making films, we just I spent all day yesterday shooting a video for our YouTube channel, and I'm like, oh, if no one watches it, we'll just make another one the next week. But you're spending years of your life on a project, which you still have, you know, the more you do it, the more you kind of go, well, it'll probably be okay. But you still don't know, and at the end of that time, it could just be like... Well, fuck, we gave it a shot, you know, and then you've spent yeah. you've spent all that time. So it really is an investment on every possible level. Yeah, which is why you better make sure that you have at least <laughs> the possibility in your in your perfect version of what you're working on 
that it is worth it because it's true it's it takes your life apart and this particular one was a beast in terms of its massiveness and you know it was not so much the scale and scope that we we love that kind of work but the the actual fact to even bring it to screen and to get people to invest in it was so, so hard. And so we were beaten down so many times that also I think only that needed three directors to survive, you know, because there was always maybe one or two of us were like near collapse. And there was always a third person saying like, come on, get up, let's move on. I, I we, think I think that's important for young filmmakers to hear, by the way, because... I think a lot of them just assume like, oh, I'm just getting beaten down now because I'm a kid or I'm young or no one knows who I am. But the fact that you guys are where you are and you've directed the films you have and you still have oh, to yeah. fight for a movie that has Tom oh, Hanks yeah. and Halle it never Berry. Yeah, our, just fight. Yeah, our financing dropped out like three days before we were meant to start shooting <laughs> and we had to make up the gap ourselves. Oh, shit. And we had already waived all our fees. The film has made entirely as an act of love in the exact same way that all young filmmakers begin. The film has a, a purity of almost amateur intent because we, we didn't get paid. We put our own money into it. We mortgaged the house to pay for it. And, in the, and when you talk about like what is the value of things, right? the value of this film, no matter what it paid to me, I mean, if there's, we don't, we don't even think about it really as a p potential um, financial reward. It's like it will never really be equal to the value of what we've experienced making it. The value of having our lives intersect for this period, the value of making this piece of art that is so unique and unconventional and has so much of our own lives woven into it. I mean, every day we keep saying, oh my God, it's like so much like the movie. We keep <laughs> like using the lines of the movie to like speak. We don't even have like our own dialogue, original dialogue anymore. You know, where it's like <laughs> and it's, um, it will all, yeah, no matter what happens, I'm so grateful for the fact that it exists that it will be there forever, that it will represent to me this moment in my life, which has been so important. And, you know, m money is such a small part of measuring the value of making art. Mm -hmm. And it's sad that in our world there, that these young filmmakers are out there and thinking that <clears throat> even in the subtext of your question, there's this idea, will it be worth it? Yeah, it's like, not even it young filmmakers. It's like how it. the movies are perceived by the public, by the critics, by, you know, journalists. Oh, is this movie successful? Well, what was the box office? Yeah. And, right. you know, if it doesn't make a certain amount of money, then it's not successful. But I think we're coming into a time where people understand the value of cultural impact. I mean, you know, some of the most popular television shows, for instance, don't even have more than a million viewers which by you know old television standards would the show would have not lasted five minutes and so mm -hmm. i think people really do understand that something can permeate the culture even if it doesn't make a billion dollars mm -hmm. and that that's still that's still important i do want to pitch the idea to all of you uh just stay with me for a second um and i'm being dead serious uh Cloud Animatlas, where you basically do animated deep dives into each one of the worlds that you go into, because I want to see so much more about Neo Soul <laughs> that, uh, you know, or or the or the valley dwellers like I, I just I want more of those stories mm -hmm. now to find out, like, what got them there? How did it evolve to that place? Who are those people? You know, so it's really uh, if. Oh, that's Kyle. He's our show PA. Hello, Kyle. Uh, conveniently a half hour late. Uh, but uh, so much traffic in Los Angeles. Ugh, what? <laughs> you come from Ventura County? Jesus Christ. I left at 9.30. Oh. All right. We'll just sit quietly in the corner and try to... He's got road rage right now. Be careful. <laughs> He's got a gun in that bag, um, what's the the actor who played Frobisher? What's his name? What's his ben name? Wishaw. Oh my God! The scenes with him and Broadbent <laughs> are f uh, fuck amazing, amazing. That guy. What else? I I definitely have seen him in stuff. Tom, Perfume. what else is? I made a movie with him that was called Perfume. Oh, the story Perfume. of the murderer. He was the guy. He was the the, the murderer. He's <laughs> the also in the uh, the hour that BBC show, right? He's, he's going to be Q in the next Bond. Yeah. 
What? <laughs> yes. I didn't know that He's yet. He's the new Q. <laughs> That's pretty. He, you can't take your eyes off the guy. Like he's, yeah, he's you're just like, holy amazing. shit. Um, but I, 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 when I heard about that, you guys partnering up. I, I don't mean to sound obnoxious with with everything I'm about to start saying, but I guess that's just what I do. But um, when I heard that you guys were collaborating on this thing, I felt this like, oh my god, it totally. I totally get it. You know, when I think of like going back, when I think of Matrix, a run, Lola, run, mm. I think of these sort of like these contained universes where you sort of question the idea of like free will and determinism, I mm. think. Mm. Or at least that's what I took no, out no, of it. No, that's really, I mean, it's, it's been part of our evolution as, uh, as lovers <laughs> that, uh, that, is, that is this kind of strangely miraculous thing that um, run, Lola, run and the Matrix, the first Matrix, they, um, they opened in the US actually in the same month, really. I mean, back to back. Almost and, the same amount of time that Tom and I were born apart. Yeah, oh shit! From each other. And, How's that for Cloud Atlas? Yes, and activity. Oh, it's all connected. <laughs> yes, and of course, of course, we, we. I mean, they're of course uh, in scale terms are on completely different levels. The films, but in in terms of the approach to you know cinema in general, you know, as a as an exciting um, medium that can still, while it's trying to. You know, get, get you involved in all, every you know, uh, you know, joy level can still be inspiring and even open up philosophical questions and you know not lose touch with what you know should be happening with an audience being involved with it and always taking you know to the edge of your seat at the same time. So we we and there's it goes to a degree that you know what you said content wise we totally felt the same. There's a re, they're, they're relatives those two films, and there's even moments you know there's a moment when the main male character dies in both films and the girl leans over resurrects and him. resurrects him it's both the movies. same both <laughs> movies have the same situation we feel like hmm, we should really try and call each other <laughs> and so we were sending each other love letters through whatever agents and friends and it took a couple of years but then we finally met and um never let go i love since. lola so much i saw lola I walked in, I watched the movie, I walked out, I bought a ticket, I went back in, <laughs> watched it again, and then my hair turned and became pink. <laughs> I was gonna, yeah, it's just the same. <laughs> it was spontaneous dread <clears throat> conception, dreadception. <laughs> Mine turned pink too, but not the hair on my head. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's a new take on that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's a cotton candy. It's, right. a, it's, a, it's an act, I, I would assume. Vajazzled. Vajazzled. Yeah. Vajazzled. Your mangina. That's right. That's uh, <laughs> I, I always feel like i got to make that area prettier somehow. Like, I don't know. If you got to dress it up. If that means that I have to put a clown wig on it, I'm fine with the it. Clown nose works too. <laughs> is, is this a morning program or an evening program? <laughs> it's been no evening program. It's whenever. It's, it's a, we're doing a podcast. We're doing a podcast. Yes, people will jam it into their ears whenever they whatever they feel like. I I remember. I mean, you know, uh, the when I first saw the Matrix trailer was in it's crowded theater, um, and then. You know, Keanu was fa was famous at that point, but really people just kind of were like, oh, the Bill and Ted guy. Mm -hmm. And so in the opening, I remember it so distinctly, the experience. It was one of the most insane trailer watching experiences I've ever had where the polarity of the audience changed. Like almost immediately when <clears throat> Keanu first comes on screen and he's like, whoa, people in the audience kind of chuckled. As the trailer went, by the end of it, everyone was like, holy fuck. Fuck, like it, I mean, literally flipped. Mm -hmm. So, you know, was, I, I'm just sort of curious what, you know, like, was that sort of your intention with the trailer is to start people in one place and then just like, and we're going to fucking blow your mind. Well, it's interesting that people love to talk about the um, kind of mechanics of how you, you sell a movie, which is cool and an interesting conversation like there's been a lot of dialogue about the trailer of cloud atlas what for us is sort of more interesting is that we we started off with uh the matrix as a script we had lots of concepts we have lots of art and the thing was that it was a we were trying to to investigate certain philosophical um ideas 
in a, a genre that was traditionally not as philosophical in cinema. It was always philosophical in literature, which is why we've always been drawn to science fiction. Science fiction, when we were growing up, is one of the most experimental literary forms that, that was being published. But we had this moment where we were trying to um, sell the studio on, on Matrix, and they came back and they said, no, we've, uh, we've run the numbers. We've, uh, we've looked at this in depth. And uh, all of us, all of these like very, you know, college-educated accountant types are sitting there. We've got it figured out. We've modeled it. It, it doesn't work. And we're like, what, what do you mean you modeled it? And it's like, look. And they hold up this thing. And it's like, Johnny Mnemonic, Keanu Reeves, virtual reality, action <laughs> equals no box office. <laughs> and so Matrix is underneath that filled in all the blanks. <laughs> <laughs> Matrix, Keanu Reeves, virtual reality, equal action, no box office. And we're in this meeting, and we're like, well, you can't compare them. They're different. Yeah, We're different from that director. It's different. And they're like, nope, it's the same. And we're there for hours trying to debate whether it was the same. Now no one would compare those two movies in their head. No one would say they're the same. And yet, here we are, cut to... Essentially, 12 years later, 11 years later, no, 12 years later, we're in another room, same room, and they're saying, you know, multiple storylines, uh, different love story uh, <laughs> equals the fountain, no box office. But doesn't that kind of say to you, like, oh, now you should feel like, oh, I think we're doing something right, because every time this happens, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like yeah. trying to explain, uh, it's like trying to explain a painting to a robot, yeah. Or you're like, no, you just, uh, you have to, you know, so you're trying to explain to these accounts, yeah. like, you got to feel it. And they're like, yeah. that's not compute. Yes, that's and then, exactly. And they, and even the way the movie is about eternal recurrence, and we keep ending up in these exact same places, and <laughs> we're saying the same things to some of the same people. And they're like, and they still does not compute, does not compute. <laughs> that's what I want. I, I really, you know, when people watch Cloud Atlas, and we're obviously not spoiling too much, but... But I think it's I want people to understand when you go in, don't just look for uh, linear character arcs, like look for thematic commentaries on the nature of humanity, I think is an important. I think if you go in with that, you know, like that, that's a really that's a really powerful, I think, a really powerful piece of sort of what tied everything, everything all together. Mm. Yeah. Don't go in with any preconceived notions. Leave your baggage at home when you go to the movies. Seriously. That's... And turn off your cell phones. Come on. Seriously. Some guys <laughs> We've fucking... said that before that there is a there's a there's some substance to the idea that the actual main character of the movie is humanity. You know, right. So, I mean, the, obviously, we've got Tom Hanks and Halle Berry. And I mean, we've got, the movie has many uh, through lines that are carried by um, singular actors, but <clears throat> they kind of, I think, looking back, which is quite similar to the novel, you don't focus on any of them. You really focus on uh, on us, yeah, as a whole, and of course, in particular, ourselves as the person that then leaves the room or uh, left the book behind. Yeah. Did you say you guys had a? Was it, did you say there was a party last night? That. It was, yes. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I was curious when you came in, you're like, oh, it was a crazy party last night. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we uh, had a family celebration yeah, last night. Yeah, family's all out for the premiere tomorrow, tonight. Yeah. I so do you feel done with it now? Is there like a weird postpartum depression where it's like, well, that's that baby's born. Ah. <sighs> Mm, we, well, we're, there's this. We've saved the afterbirth, actually. So oh, good. Are we going to cook it? Far, yeah, we're. We're going to keep it in the refrigerator like a, like a wedding <laughs> cake. <laughs> right. We're going to eat it a year from now, fry it up with some liver and onion. That's good, Cloud there's Atlas some, afterbirth. There's, there's some mellow in the air, at least for us. You know, we've lived together for four years now. We've been like, you know, more than family. It's been like a threesome. And. And with all these people around, you know, all these people, I mean, of course, our partners, you know, who are super important, but also, I mean, this, it's this family thing that has, oh, I mean, movies have that very often, but uh, I think all of us have never experienced it to this extent, the way you're interwoven, that the movie stories and the movie's experience itself is so much interwoven with your own life and also with, you know, ups and downs of your own life. And yeah. 
now we're so we feel so bonded that um, you know in a way it's absurd to even think about stopping you know and i mean you know we still have some you know we kind of enjoy promoting the movie even though there's something absurd about it but the fact that it holds us together and that you know we get to <laughs> it's sometimes it's very joyful even though in absurd moments when you feel like okay how do we take get a new take on that question and uh, then you know sometimes one of us comes up with something we all haven't heard ever and there's a there's a it's a it's there's a beauty to that kind of procedure of you know revisiting your own movie by talking about it publicly and uh, I, i i enjoy it very much and i know that i kind of dragged the two of them a little bit with me because i said like i'm not gonna go alone into this <laughs> and it's been very it's been it's been actually lovely and uh, so so yeah i'm now giving birth is a bit uh, yeah a bit strange how is the is the press process is it okay or is it sort of like bleh? i mean i guess maybe don't want to say but it, how has it been so far um It's, uh, you know, it's difficult to talk about yourself and your <laughs> art and endlessly. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's been all right. I mean, there there's this um, there's this feeling uh, that we have gotten that, you know, some of the press took our uh, our uh, our desire to not talk to them. They took it personally like it was about, you know, you know, it was about us. Yeah. The, judging. And it wasn't like that. We. We just like our anonymity, and uh, it's precious. And uh, once you give it up, that's it. You know, you're not a virgin anymore. And uh, so, uh, yeah, we had our our, our vow <laughs> that we had written down. Uh, and uh, so, I don't know. It's been uh, it's been fine. I know it feels weird. I, I mean, even even like when you get comics together and you start talking about stand up at a certain point, you're just like. We sound like, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, let's just go make the stuff and then not have to analyze it to death afterwards. Yeah, I mean, we live in this world where it's this instantaneous gratification. Okay, I just saw this movie. Let me Google it and find out what it was about so I can know what it's about. And uh, when we were kids, we'd go to the movies and we'd, you know, our parents would take us to, sometimes they'd take us to these triple features. And we'd go see a movie, then we'd go have breakfast. And then, you know, we'd sit and we'd talk about it. And, you know, that sort of thing has gone away a little bit and uh i, I don't know uh, i mean i resent the fact that i have to you know you know write the movie make the movie edit the movie and now i gotta talk about it and define what it is you know a movie should the, a movie going experience should change over the course of your life i mean i look back on what we did with bound and that movie means something a little differently to me now that I'm, you know, 14 years removed from it. And I can't, I have a bit more insight into it. But, you know, if I'm over there, my younger self talking about Bound and basically defining it in front of a microphone like this, then uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't allow for any sort of growth or change in terms of what the actual intent was. And not only that, but just the idea of film as a collaborative medium, you know, uh, a lot of people put a lot of ideas into uh, making a movie and it's not, uh, I am uncomfortable uh, defining what all of those ideas are. I, it's uh, presumptuous. Yeah. Also, you don't want to tell the people too much. You, th th there's something in the unwrapping of a movie emotionally when you're watching it. You don't want to tell people too much like do this, feel this. <laughs> Watch yeah. this. Like you want them because you have this massive moving canvas and you want people to, sort of absorb however it's going to affect them. But people actually want that, and, and people uh, defend and fight for that in a way. They, there's, there's a, there's a um, we always thought that it was interesting that nobody wrote about the idea that was something we immediately thought of when we started working on the first Matrix. We said, well, you know, actually all movies are Matrixes. You go in and you sort of plug into them, and they kind of coddle you and swaddle you and they tell you what to feel and they tell you what to think they tell you the music tells you how to be where you, where to be emotionally <laughs> they're always constantly informing your your understanding and belief of this world that is in front of you that is being projected in front of you the 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 platon on the platonic cave wall and what we were wondering is could you 
encourage people to abandon that dynamic? Could you encourage people, could you encourage an audience to actually try this other form of engagement where you you put the audience sort of through what Neo went through on the three movie, or where you, you, you have these rules and you have this traditional model that everyone loves and enjoys. You know, the first movie is um, the most traditional movie. And then the second movie shatters all of those traditions. And then the third movie says, okay, where do we go after post-modernity? Where do we go when we've shattered all of these things and deconstructed all of these things? How, what do we do next? And the movie tries to ask you to participate in it in a way that the first movie doesn't. And people get upset. They don't like it. They, don't, they think that there's something um, uh, often antagonistic in the idea of not telling them what it means or to presume that you can have any meaning at all. Yeah. There is this like, and I don't mind it. Like I think that there's value to entertainment in the world, but I think that there's value to making art. I don't think they're the same pursuit. They can have things that cross over, like art can be entertaining or entertainment can have a, a, a sort of dimension of meaning that is, is in, in the work. But I hate when they attack each other, like as if the people who are defending entertainment say that all art is pretentious and stupid. And if you say one thing that sounds like an idea, they want to just burn it. Like it's like <laughs> the, the barbarian, the Christian barbarians burning the libraries. Like we hate ideas. <laughs> all ideas are pretentious. <laughs> Can't you just feel it, man? Well, this is, this I just want to laugh. I just want to have a good time. <laughs> Clown Atlas is definitely a movie that I want. I, I I feel like I want to see it a couple of times. Now that I sort of, now that I absorbed it the first time, now I want to go back and see where all the connective points were and go, oh, that from that, that's setting up that or that's that. Uh, but when I first, do you guys still have those? So how many cinematic? life-changing experiences do you think we get in our lives like you see a movie like run lola run you see a movie like matrix and then it slightly alters your worldview and you go oh fuck a movie can be that and then you get a little sad that you can't experience it for the first time again <laughs> you know because you've seen it and you every time you see it you experience it differently so do you still have are, are there still things that you see that you're like oh shit i'm surprised oh, yeah all the time oh, yeah. All the time. It's Roy like, Anderson. Roy Anderson. Go watch his movies. He's okay. unbelievable. Swedish guy, You the Living, and Songs from the Second Floor. You'll keep having those experiences as long as you keep um, um, being, um, being given the opportunity to abandon your perspective. That's what happens. Once you become so rooted in your perspective... And you keep that's your you 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 can't escape the gravity of your own um, taste and your own ideas about the world. As soon as you can't escape that gravity anymore, then you will stop having those experiences. Oh shit, that's getting old. That what you're talking about is turning into an old right. person. It's yeah, just like get off my of lawn. People who have inc who can experience that all the time because sure. they have they don't they don't they don't feel that gravitational pull. They let go. Art is a Art is an invitation to abandon your perspective. Art always says, come with me. Look at the world in a different way. And you can always fly off. You can always be Peter Pan. You can always extend yourself as long as you let go of those things that hold you in your perspective. When you're, when you're kind of exploring these philosophical ideas through the movie, and I, you know, I'm sure you go in with some preconceived notions about what you want to say, but... Is, is a lot of it sort of like just you as people just throwing a bunch of stuff out there that you're trying to express and then looking at it and going, oh, that's what I was trying to say. I mean, like, do you learn from your own stuff? Well, that is in the nature of, I think, our particular work. I think it's actually what happens to most artists. But in, in this particular work, because it's film, there's so many amazing people who come to you and give you something you didn't know. I mean, I mean the most obvious uh, part of it being... You know, we work on a script for years and we uh, prep a movie for ages. We do all the design, you know, with the artists, you know, with production designers. And you have the cinematographer come in with all these ideas that, you know, they all become part of it. And then still you set sort of a stage for the actual shooting, <clears throat> which, you know, in a process that we had, which was altogether four years, make, making nothing but this movie, 
the shooting only is three months. You know, we always feel like, oh yeah, that's it's really important, obviously. But what it is, at least in the way we work, it's setting a stage mostly for the actors. You know, being as prepared as you can be, having thought about most of the things you can think about, and then suddenly being thrown at with hundreds of things you could never even have imagined about a scene, which is what, of course, brilliant actors do to you. It's the yeah. most amazing, wonderful, and, of course, exciting thing that you can imagine because suddenly they go, oh, right, the way he does it is something I didn't even know that that could be the scene, you know? I mean, there's this, there's this, is this too much of a spoiler to talk about the scene in the, with Tom and Hugh? I'm going to tell people at the top of the show, like, there are some mild, <clears throat> light spoilers, so... It's probably just because it's one of those scenes that I think we all imagine to be amazing, but because of other reasons. You know, there's a scene where um, Tom Hanks's one of Tom Hanks's characters leans over on over Hugh Grant and is who plays a cannibal. Who plays a cannibal exactly? <laughs> and, and Tom Hanks plays a, a, a valet's man from Savages of the Future, <laughs> and uh, he is unbelievably angry and full of rage and revenge desire and has a knife and Hugh Grant is asleep. So what is he going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the whole idea, of course, of, you know, you know, going on set and knowing, okay, we've got Tom Hanks with a big knife leaning over Hugh Grant, ready to slit his throat already was so intense as an idea in itself. Because, of course, you can't avoid all the other projections that come along with was the actors that are on screen too at the same time and yet, yet you are involved in the actual narrative of, of the plot. Yeah. And then seeing that Tom in this moment not only pulled off the intensity of the moment itself, you know, which is intense in itself, but also referred to all the other characters he was basically um, uh, playing all the way through this movie, all these other people that are connected to his let's say, genetic string that he's representing or like all the incarnations of the soul that he's playing. Mm -hmm. and they all happen to run through his face or through his bones while he's acting and is kind of fighting with himself. Will I kill him? Will I not kill him? And see that, of course, on screen and realizing, oh my God, I, we, I, I never knew that this would be what the scene would be about. You know, it's so much, it's a million times richer than, it was already rich in my opinion, but it became a fully new experience to watch just because of this actor coming on screen and doing something that I have never, never would imagine. So this is what you do when you make a movie. You have constant, this is just one example, and it happens in every department. I mean, imagine what those makeup designers did to us. You know, when, when we talk to, you know, Jeremy Woodhead, <laughs> Daniel Parker, these two guys, you go like, oh, can you, can you, um, well, can we make... Jim Sturgis be, you know, a good-looking Asian guy. <laughs> uh, and then they come back to three days later and after eight hours with Jim Sturgis in, the, in this little box and you go and people, he walks past you and nobody greets Jim Sturgis. <laughs> right. Because nobody knows it's him because everybody thinks, who's this Asian guy on set? He hanging I mean, around? that's just, that's something you imagine, but then when it happens to you, it is, it is different, of course. You know, and it's also different... Because things happen that you couldn't know in advance. Yeah. What do you guys like to do? Do you read comics or do you play a game? What, what's, your, what's your free time? What's, what's your you time? <clears throat> well, we haven't had a lot. So uh, <laughs> from memory, uh, <laughs> lots of reading, uh, lots of watching, listening, some playing. Yeah. Some playing. We used to play a lot of video games, but time, don't have as much time. Yeah. Days. Yeah, all of us. But reading, we can't give up. Reading's too important. Yeah. What are you reading now that you like? We just, I just gave Tom this book. The Swerve. It's unbelievable. Change your life book right here. All right. Stephen Goldblatt. Some Pulitzer Prize very winner. resonant with uh, Cloud Alice nonfiction, even though it describes some relationship to Dan Brown on the back cover. Do not be confused <laughs> by this. Don't be confused by the Dan Brownism. <laughs> that's that's a that's a marketing person right there. That, throw a guy's name on there that people have heard of. Maybe yeah. they'll maybe they'll pick up the book. The book is beautiful. This idea of knowledge in the movie. There's a um, there's a uh, an exploration of how art is often a consequence that ripples out and that can 
interconnect um, time periods and human beings and transcend these kinds of differentiations. Like David did this beautiful thing in the book, David Mitchell. He, he took these traditional genres that are separated and these traditional sort of time periods that are separated and by inserting them into each other in your mind you sort of begin to dissolve these conventional barriers between these time periods and genres so you say like you know we all in our lives have said oh the past that's different from us they didn't they were different back then they didn't understand things like we do they they were less evolved than we are and in the future, you know, we're not there yet. We can't think about that yet. That's, you know, I have no responsibility for that. I have responsibility for my time, my family, my moment now. And what he, David, reminds us by subtly inserting these things into each other is that it's much more continuous and contiguous than we want to believe. Our humanity is really in the dissolution of all of those things and actually trying to find a perspective or a, a way of inhabiting your understanding, your consciousness that's more ocean-like, that sort of permeates all of these traditional barriers. And this book talks about how art can be buried, can, can have an impact and then be buried essentially for the dark, for the, this unbelievable book written by Lucretius, who is a disciple of Epicurus. He, um, he wrote this book and it's buried for essentially 1,200 years and then it gets rediscovered and that launches the Renaissance. There's nothing but 1,200 years of the church's totalitarian oppression of all intellectual pursuits until this book resurfaces and sort of gives birth to the modern age again. And you think like, 1,200 years of development and evolution lost. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the beauty of this whole idea that one book, and actually in this case, you know, we're talking 14th century, one book is like one copy. You know, and oh, we're, right. We're not saying like one book who would, which was lying around with a thousand copies. One uh, copy that is retrieved from some archives changes history in this kind of, to, to this extent, is, is it kind of beautifully ripples through all the way until Cloud Atlas, where in, in the movie, if you remember it, which is taken from the book, of course, you know, the guy, there's, you know, throughout those six storylines, you know, there's, in 18th, 19th century, there's a guy who writes a journal that, again, Robert Frobisher in the 30s later reads and is inspired by to create his composition, but also writes beautiful letters to his lover who reads them until, you know, into the 70s. They're being found in the 70s by the journalist who is thinking about those letters and trying to figure out the crime that she's investigating being ultimately inspired by it too in order to solve it, her story then is written into a book by her young friend who turns it into a, uh, you know, her story into a book that is being read by Timothy Cavendish in present day, which is Trim Broadbent's character, who reads that manuscript as it becomes his personal Bible in prison, basically in the elderly home. And, you know, it keeps going like that because then he writes his story into a book that is being turned into a movie where Tom Hanks as an actor in the future plays the leading part, which is ultimately the inspiration for Son Mi, the fabricant who lives in 2200 <laughs> Seoul, I mean, it's in Korea, to spark a revolution. It's, do you, you guys must have loved the show Connections. <laughs> do you remember the show Connections? Um, yeah, I saw it a couple times. Oh, you would love it. It's, yeah. a, it's, this old, it's this older British show, and yeah. it's basically like, in this episode of Connections, I'm going to show you how the invention of the ore led to the micro... You know, like, it, and they basically oh, really? just... It That's just sort cool. of... It walks you through all these bizarre... Where you... It's kind of the um, the sort of tangential... thing Where just sort of circumstances just sort of brush up against. Just exactly like what you were talking oh, about. Nice. But it actually it. is about... It's about things that exist yeah. in our in our modern world. That and it, is it old? Like It's old, uh, yeah. 60, yeah. 70, James, 80s? um remember his name? James, uh... Fuck! <laughs> brain! Why are you failing me? Uh, I'm gonna, I want to get his name because it's... Uh, I, I, I think you guys would love the series and the I... The auxiliary lobe is now being... <laughs> 
Accent. Oh my god. Accent. I would love to have you narrate like every time I go into like an intense thought process because that would make it so much cooler. Hmm. The eyebrow goes up. Uh, I, I, this is hang on. I know this is irritating, but uh, oh, James Burke. James Burke. Uh, it was a series in the 70s and then they kind of revamped it a little bit in the 90s, but it's it is exactly that idea and it's a fun, breezy sort of, uh, you oh, know, right. very British and academic and fun and <laughs> out thinking outside the box and um and so, uh, and so I recommend that. So are you guys watching any television shows? Are you, are you watching TV? Um, yeah. Well, uh, television is interesting nowadays, yeah. It is. It's probably more interesting than cinema sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's been a sort of interesting topic because we, you know, all, I think all time periods um, experience aesthetic death. That's something that happens during our lives. The things that we grew up loving they suddenly change, or I mean, they, they don't suddenly, they, they change over time. They become something else. So when we were young, the things that we fell in love with that made us want to be filmmakers were these really large canvas films that were about ideas and were meant for adults. And um, that has sort of ch changed somewhat in a lot of the big ideas and adult-themed narratives are actually being done on television now, and they're not really being done on large canvas sort of formats. And we wanted to make something that was for us a part of the aesthetic and a part of, the, uh, a part of our love of cinematic form in the same way that David sort of threw his arms around all these different literary forms in the novel and, and did it out of a kind of love, but wanted to reinvent it at the same time. So there's something that is in Cloud Atlas, which is resonant against both this traditional sort of classic love that we have for cinema, but it's influenced structurally and somewhat content-wise by... Uh, things that are being done in television and TV shows, like the, the multi-branch narrative is very common in television. You see it a lot. I mean, yeah. lost, you know, past and present and potential future uh, being explored with a simultaneity. But um, um, w we miss those things on the big screen. We miss going to movie theaters and having something be beautiful and huge and aesthetically um, um, full of wonder and craft like Lawrence of Arabia when you watch it on the big screen it's a completely different movie than the movie you would watch on your iPad <laughs> or iPad mini now <laughs> yeah. and so we, we miss that experience of having ambiguity and complexity up on the large screen it's getting commonplace to have it on your tv screen but we wanted to experience it again one maybe one last time <laughs> <laughs> did you ever think that when you were making the matrix that you actually you're like oh yeah this is i mean do you follow any of like the kurzweil stuff or the singularity or any type of you know um you know like that sort of like simulacra idea i mean it's essentially now because people just you go oh, i'm going into the matrix now it's just become part of our vernacular mm -hmm. of you know people living through avatars and people living these whole other consciousness online i love the genius of kurzweil's optimism and that he transcends <laughs> all of the typical traditional conflicts that we project onto this idea of machine versus human right um, ensuing, you know, consciousness develops in the machines, and and this instantly suggests to all of us that conflict is inevitable because you have this slave class of, or this thing that we've been used to using and manipulating will now suddenly say, "Hey, stop using and manipulating me." <laughs> but, <laughs> but he, his genius is so beautiful and so optimistic that he just jumps right over that and says at the that the time that that moment that thing says you know stop using and manipulating me we've already become so attached that we actually are saying hey 
stop using and manipulating me at the same time it's saying stop using and manipulating me. Oh, it's a dysfunctional symbiotic relationship of... I think it's genius. That's... (laughs) Your auxiliary lobe that you reach for instantaneously. You're like, hey, what is that? What is that piece of information? It's already attached. I had to access my external hard drive, which is the internet. Why I don't need to remember anything anymore. I don't ever need to remember anything. Everything is... We're an an app-based avatar representation of a society now it's sort of a i i i love hate i don't know if there's a is there a word for love hate other than just love hate where it's like it's so great that we have all this at our fingertips and so horrible that we don't really relate to one another anymore on a human level or ever have to remember anything ever again well that's oh so god that's so many complex subjects there chris first you need therapy okay all right <laughs> let's do it let's work it out right now Um, I think there's something always beautiful and complex and pathological and dangerous. All development technologically has always brought issues and, um, you know, uh, death and potential birth. Generally, though, technology works towards helping us overcome hardship and suffering, traditional suffering, mm-hmm. and serves as a means of connectivity and transcendence of differentiation. So I think the internet and technology has been one of the great sources of the acceleration of overcoming our terror of otherness. Yes. The, the younger generation, I mean, I'm a great example. I mean, when I was young differentiations in gender or sexuality freaked people out. But now this younger generation grows up in sexuality, race, gender. These traditional forms of differentiation in terms of identity are so easily overcome. Well, that's in part of people like you who embrace it and are comfortable with it. And that makes other people say, oh, I guess that's okay now. You know, it's also about access. Yeah. Yeah. You're able to plug in and talk to people through language converters in foreign countries and you interact with them and you realize how much they are like you. And this is um, this is the greatest way that you you're able to shed fear and terror of difference. Yeah. Well, we're almost at the hour, which has been. This has been really fun. This has been a fun... Oh, come on. Be honest with us. I'm dead serious. I thought Andy was going to hit me a couple times, but he <clears throat> seems okay now. I still might. Be careful. What? What did I... No, no. Are you guys... Are, you're working on Jupiter Ascending? Is that is that the project you're working on next? Or can you talk about anything you're working on next? Or, okay. Okay. I just saw the squint. Do we have to go to work already? No. Forget it. Fuck it. <laughs> fuck it all. Fuck work. Fuck work. We just had a nice philosophical... Uh, Discussion about art. Was that too heady for you? No, it was great. Actually, I want to talk about your assistant. What's your <laughs> What's your assistant's name? She's She's in love with you. Oh, that's sweet. What's her name? I'll say hi. Amy. Hi, Amy. <laughs> she's gonna melt. Oh, Amy Allegretti. Amy Allegretti. Do you have an assistant that I could say hi to? Because that wouldn't be fair to not... Yeah, I'm sorry to tell you, I think she's never heard of you in her entire life. Because well, she lives in Germany and I is know. Uh, not really listening to you. I, I, I think, Tom, you're not listening to her because <laughs> I'm sure a lot of her conversation is Chris Hardwick-centric. <laughs> uh, I, You know, just... I. W- Here's a question for you. Just what, what do you think is one thing, one way that German culture has benefited from American culture? And what is one way that you think we could learn from you guys? Oh my God. You must be kidding me. No, I want a four page report. Um, well, oh, t- if anyone funny, could just the, see the sadness in Tom's eyes right now, please don't make me do yeah, this. It's a bit of a. You should have asked it an hour ago. The part is, for me, it's the interesting thing is that I feel really at home in both cultures, which is an interesting experience for myself. And I guess I have (laughs) probably grown into it very much through, you know, actually popular culture and movies, um, obviously, and that I uh, that there is a that there is a life that can be spent in both cultures so comfortably. 
has also to do with the fact that there is obviously a deeper, you know, European-American connection that has grown over the last hundred years, probably, that um, that we that we're still not that as aware of as we probably should be. And uh, yet, what we learn from each other is uh, is difficult to say because I mean, you know, the the political situation at the moment always reminds me of the fact that. You know, in Europe, we're now struggling with our union a little bit, um, and yet we're defending it in its construction because it has a construction that very much tries to um, protect uh, the, uh, you know, the, the individualisms of each culture. That's part of it. Sure. You know, it's kind of complex, but at the same time, we have to sort of politically be on the same page. Right. And I think... Uh, you know, even though it looks like we're struggling very much, but that there was a diversified and unified attempt at once, you know, that it's kind of happening, that we're trying to keep it both alive, has uh, obvious merits that I think that, uh, you know, you know, the United States have this craziness that it sometimes feels like, I just saw this movie Beast of the Southern Wild and everybody goes like, This is the United States of America. Okay. <laughs> That's the same country that when I step out of the movie theater, I stand on Sunset Boulevard and I'm in the same country. And that's uh, that's crazy, of course. I mean, there's something crazy about it. About the, the, there's something crazy about the concept of having one country be so huge. Yeah. And uh, so that we kind of keep our countries, but work so close together in Europe, I think generally is a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I so, mean, yeah, it's, we're, we're basically a country of a bunch of tiny countries. Yes. I don't, it's even weird for me to go to the fucking valley. I'm like, yeah. this is a whole other place. But you've got one government, you know, so that <laughs> yeah. is a, that is a different cu cup of tea. So probably I think you should, you know, even though we're struggling right now, so everybody will probably say like, oh, look at the Europeans. <laughs> I think the way we struggle is also based on, You know, it's based on exactly that that conflict and uh, the struggling is part of it. And I think we will always overcome it. And there's something good about that. And the other way around is I always really suffer from the from the ridiculous slowness of um, excitement that you can put into Europeans' heads and the way that you encourage each other here in 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 this continent. I love it so much. The the, the The general attitude of encouraging each other when you when somebody tries something that the person that meets that person usually says like all oh, right go for it oh yeah that sounds great sounds great <laughs> whereas in germany you usually could hear first of all well yeah did you finish your college do you did you actually i mean shouldn't you first learn something else before you do this shouldn't you i don't know whether that's a really good idea you know that's what you hear first sure and uh, that's that's a cultural beauty that i that i'm actually very in love with That is an excellent answer that I know you didn't feel like giving, so I appreciate that. <laughs> that is very nice of you. Uh, thanks so much, you guys. It was it was really it was really nice to meet you, and I hope you had an okay time. Yes. And yes. hello to Amy Allegretti <laughs> at the nice. end of the podcast. <laughs> I'm going to Amy Allegretti's house. <laughs> oh I'm bringing some pasta. <laughs> Amy Allegretti. Amy Allegretti. <laughs> <laughs> Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels. A symphony of just three simple ingredients. Popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist... Dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.